0: Welcome to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon podcast. We walk this duality between government and the kingdom of God. We already know what it's like to live with the government. But what does life look like if we were to truly live for the kingdom of God? If we gave God everything that was his? You're listening to Windows on the Word, Give Back to Caesar by Reverend Mike Hogaboom. Good morning. We uh, continue our uh, series, Windows on the Word. Uh, today's uh, window is the third transept from the back here on the east side, my right, your left. Uh, it's part of that, that triple window where we have the transfiguration, Jesus, Moses, Elijah there. The window we're gonna be t- we will be talking about is in the upper left-hand corner of that, of that triptych, you have the men there uh, facing Jesus and then they're gesturing to an object at the, at the bottom of that, of that picture. This is the one window in the whole sort of pamphlet booklet of windows containing descriptions that gets it wrong. In the booklet, it says this. It says, this is a picture of Jesus Preaching foreboding events, and then it has a series of passages to look up. But when you look at the, but when you look at the picture, you can see some identifying details. One, Jesus is holding a coin in his hand. Can you see that? You can see it probably a little more clearly on the uh, cover of the bulletin. And then uh, they are pointing down to an object at the bottom of that picture, and that object is an axe. You can see the head of the axe sticking out at the top, surrounded by rods or poles. That object has a name. It's called a fasces. F-A-S-C-E-S. It was an instrument used by Roman magistrates to carry out corporal punishment. Those were birch rods or ash rods made out of hardwood, and those were used to beat people. In fact, in Acts chapter 12, uh, we read, 16 rather, Acts 16, Paul is in the city of Philippi, and we are told that he is arrested and he is beaten with rods by by the authorities. He references that same beating, and maybe there were others, but certainly that beating again in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, saying he was beaten with rods at least three times. So that object there is a fascist. Over time, that object uh, became more symbolic of the authority of magistrates to carry out corporal and um, actually capital punishment, the acts represented that, ca- that uh, power of capital punishment. And uh, it was cast in different metals, and the magistrate would carry that staff around with him. It, it became an artistic symbol used in motifs on, like, government buildings, um, you know, the courthouse, uh, the legislature. It became a symbol of Roman authority, both um, so... That is called a fascist. So, taken together, the questioners, Jesus, the coin, the symbol of Roman authority and government, leads us to this passage in Matthew 22, uh, verses 15 to 22. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, that is to Jesus, Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with all the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you, Hypocrites! Why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God." What is God's? When they heard this, they were amazed. and So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Now you all know uh, from reading your New Testaments that the Pharisees are serious about religion. They exercise their spiritual... um, Power by deadlifting layer upon layer of rules and regulations on top of the Ten Commandments. One example, the Fourth Commandment, the sa- about the Sabbath and not working on the Sabbath. The Pharisees, from reading the book of Exodus, had determined that there were 39 categories of work that broke that command. 39. 39. Some of them include the, these. Planting, shearing, trapping, building, plowing, reaping, grinding, weaving, writing, sowing, tearing. You get the picture. Under those 39 categories, there were subcategories of work that also broke the command. So the Pharisees spent their time sparring with one another, about questions like, is it lawful to toss out dirty dishwater on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to spit on the ground on the Sabbath? Because the danger was that that water could accidentally water a seed which would grow, and there you go. You've worked on the Sabbath and broken the law. When Jesus begins his ministry, the Pharisees love nothing more than to draw him into a good fight. To his disciples, they ask things like, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Right? They're unclean. When Jesus performs a miracle, then they turn to the crowd and say, it's by the prince of demons that he casts out demons. And Then they take Jesus on directly Saying things like, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath, Jesus. And again, why do your disciples break the tradition of the Pharisees, the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. The Pharisees love picking fights with Jesus. By the time we get to chapter 22 in Matthew's gospel, they've been on a long losing streak in these debates these sparring matches with Jesus. The most recent was Jesus in the temple. It's Passover week when we read this story. It was Jesus in the temple cleansing the temple. He pushed him up, to the, up against the ropes that time. And then Jesus follows up with a whole series of, of parables. And in each parable has a common theme. The insiders of the parable usually end up, or all in each case, end up being in contrast to the work of the kingdom of God, which is welcoming, redeeming, restoring those who typically are on the outside. So after this long losing streak, the the Pharisees decide to shift their tactics. Instead of attacking Jesus by deadlifting their rules and regulations on top of the law, they come at him from a political angle. And to do that, they have to recruit the help of their enemies, the Herodians. Now, for all that we know about the Pharisees in the New Testament, we know very little about the Herodians from the New Testament. In fact, they are mentioned only three times, two stories, three times. The first story is in Mark chapter 3. Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. The Herodians immediately go out and plot how they're going to kill Jesus. Then we have this story in Matthew 22 and its corresponding story in Mark's gospel. That's found in chapter 12 of Mark. Those are the same stories. This story of the question about paying the tax to Caesar. What we know about the Herodians then is mostly gleaned from their name, Herodian. You can hear it. Herod is in there. You'll recall, right, that Herod was not the rightful king of Israel, of Judah, because he is not a descendant of David. Instead, he was appointed and received all of his authority, all of his power from Rome. The Herodians were probably then a political group of a political group that allied themselves and supported Herod, and by that alliance they received political favor, political power, political might. So when they are recruited by the Pharisees and attack Jesus, they are a serious opponent because they have the Roman legion standing in their corner. And they come at Jesus with the political question that was being talked about on the back streets and in the marketplaces of Jerusalem. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Yes or no, Jesus? What is it? If Jesus says yes, the Pharisees, The Pharisees are going to call him a collaborator with Rome and he will become an enemy of the people. If Jesus says no, the Herodians will report that he is a rebel against the state and then he becomes an enemy of Rome. Jesus is trapped. Jesus is cornered. I think it's worth noting here that, that Jesus, Matthew records, that Jesus recognizes that the Pharisees and Herod are one thing, but what, has, what is really trying to trap him is evil, the evil one. In this question, Jesus hears echoes of Satan's temptation in the wilderness when he promised him all of the political power of the kingdoms of this earth. And so, with his back against the ropes now, Jesus pivots. You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? You probably know this. Hypocrite is uh, refers or comes from the world of acting in Greek. It refers to an actor who wears a mask. Okay. So when, when Jesus calls them a hypocrite, he pulls back their mask, and he shows them and the crowd that what lies behind their question is not a search for answers. It is a grasping or a clinging to the power that they, that they are afraid of losing. For the Pharisees, it's a fear of losing their religious power. For the Herodians, it's a fear of losing their political power. But now, with their hypocrisy exposed, Jesus answers their question. Show me the coin. The coin, of course, has the image of Caesar on it. And so Jesus says, it must belong to Caesar. It's got his image on it. So give back to Caesar what belongs to him. It was his to begin with. Give it back. What Jesus means is that disciples pay their taxes. This is what the church has always understood Jesus to mean in this passage. Pastor Bob read from Paul's book to the Romans, chapter 13, where Paul says the same thing. Followers of Jesus pay their taxes. They respect, they honor The governing authorities as a way, as a form of honoring and showing respect to God. It's what Jesus means, it's what Paul said. Now we hear that we hear that in our context, our democracy. And that sounds okay. Respect the authorities, all right? That's a way of respecting God okay, I can do that. Think about Jesus saying that. Passover week. In a few short days, Jesus is going to be beaten with the rods of that fascist. A few days, Jesus will be suffering capital punishment at the hands of the state. Think about the Apostle Paul. When he writes to the Romans, that is years after he had been arrested and beaten in the city of Philippi. Jesus says, it belongs to Caesar. Give back to Caesar what belongs to him. He says this as a command to his disciples to respect the government as a form of respecting God. And so he answers The question put before him, which lands him in that very difficult corner. But he goes beyond their question. You'll notice that. He goes beyond their question, which was about obedience to the state, and introduces into the conversation the importance of obedience to God. He uses the same word, give back, give back to God, What belongs to God? What's he referring to? Well, in the same way that the coin bore the image of Caesar and Jesus says, give back to Caesar that which has its image, Jesus is saying, give back to God that which bears God's image. Give back to God. Now, in the context of matthew especially here in chapter 22 giving back to god is to give god what he has already given us and there is no greater gift from god to us than love and jesus says in just a couple verses later love the lord your god with all your heart your soul your mind and love your neighbor as yourself the god who loved this world so much that he gave this this is the picture of what jesus is calling us to indeed if the if the problem with the pharisees the trouble that the pharisees and the herodians had was to cling to their power religious or political then, then the solution that Jesus offers is an open-handed giving of love to God and to our neighbors. Now, what might that look like? Well, I think it looks a whole lot less than those sparring matches between Jesus and the Pharisees. And, and probably a whole lot more like, like the giving that we enjoy when we gather around the table. With family and friends, and even strangers, which made me think of a story I read from Father Greg Boyle, who's a Jesuit priest. He uh, is the executive director, the founder of an organization called uh, Homeboy Industries. They provide hope, they provide training, formation for people who are former gang members, people who are formerly incarcerated. They're located in Los Angeles. Father Greg has written a book, Tattoos on the Heart. And in that book, he tells a story of a time he was serving as a chaplain, the prison chaplain, uh, on an island in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of Mexico. Now, this is Mexico's version of Alcatraz. There was no escape, uh, surrounded by sharks and so forth. He spent three months on this island. He slept on a mattress in the chapel. During the day, he would work side-by-side with the prisoners, making bricks out of mud, no joke. In the afternoon, he uh, said mass. And in the evening, he would play dominoes with the prisoners. Now, life on that island was difficult for those three months. The work was hard. The isolation was crushing, the cruelty was daily. The food, he says, the food was awful. In three months, Father Greg lost 40 pounds. One day, uh, Beto, a prisoner, guy who worked side by side with Father Greg, making bricks every day, told him to meet him at a particular time and, and place in the afternoon. So Father Greg showed up. Beto showed up. At the appointed time, at the appointed location, carrying a cloth sack that Father Greg thought for sure he could see something moving and writhing inside of the sack. But he didn't have time to ask because immediately Beto was leading them on a path through the dormitories and eventually out into the forest that surrounded the compound. Clearly, he was trying to avoid detection from the guards. As they went through a particularly dense part of the forest, they emerged into a clearing. In the clearing, Father Greg saw firewood and a big old pot with water and some vegetables. Father Greg didn't want to know where the vegetables came from. So, they sat down and Beto started to uh, chop up some vegetables. He got the fire going and the, and the water starting to boil. And, and At that point, he pulled out an iguana out of the, the sack. And he s- killed it and skinned it and he, he cut it up into chunks and threw it into the boiling pot of water. Father Craig says that iguana tastes just like chicken. So after a while, the aroma of this soup that's gathering starts to uh, exceed the limits of the uh, you know, clearing that they're in, and that they hear rustling in the leaves just outside, and into the clearing steps another prisoner. Beto motions him to come sit, join them at their fire, and and share in this pot of soup that's that's working its way uh, to completion. And the prisoner uh, actually turns around and leaves the clearing, comes back in a short a short while later. And he's holding in his hand this gift. Well, it didn't look like a gift. What it was was a crumpled up piece of newspaper. And he peeled back the sheets of that newspaper. And inside was an entire handful of salt. He takes the salt and he empties every last uh, granule of salt into the soup sits down, and they let it boil. A little while later, another prisoner makes his way into the clearing, and and he's carrying this dented, beat-up, old tin can. And with the knife that they had been cutting up vegetables with and, and a stone, they are able to get the top, peel it just back, and inside of that can is this beautiful red tomato paste. They scoop it out of there and they throw every last bit of that tomato paste, his gift, into the pot. Beto continues to cut up more vegetables as people arrive around their fire and and join them by the soup. Over time, prisoners contribute jalapenos and beans and tortillas. Father Greg writes this, Maybe there are eight of us or so. When, we, when the meal finally gets served, plenty to go around and just as tasty as could be. Everyone brought his flavor to this pot of iguana stew. And keeping anyone away and excluded, well, it was unthinkable to this band of prisoners. Alone, they didn't have much. But together, they had a pot full of Plenty. Friends, God's mission in this world, God's mission in this world for his church is to set a table where folks are gathered to share their gifts with one another. As great or as meager as they are. And in this way, it becomes a feast. This is what love looks like. Jesus' words, give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God, have been words of command and caution for the church throughout history. Because it is not easy, it is not automatic for God's people to hold in balance our call to political engagement and our call to God's mission in this world. Our call to respect the state and to obey God. It takes a lot of thought. It takes humility. It takes prayer and and courage to achieve that sort of balance in our calling. A while ago, I received a book entitled Serving the Claims of Justice. It contains essays from Paul Henry. Beloved professor at at Calvin University. Beloved representative from West Michigan. Beloved member of this church when he died. His essays are timely, they're thoughtful, and they contribute to this discussion about how do we integrate a deep faith together with the difficulties of political life. In an essay written in 1979, Paul Henry talks about how proud he is to be part of the evangelical church. He points out and warns about the attempts of secularism to sort of marginalize Judeo-Christian values. And then, toward the end of his essay, he raises a concern he has about evangelicals, the group that he so closely identifies with. He observes that the governing power in the United States was held at that time by white, middle-class, suburban, Midwestern males. He also observed that evangelicals shared many of the same values as those white, suburban, Midwestern males. That was not his concern. His concern that evangelicalism had become isolated, culturally Isolated, And it was, quote, deaf to the questions being asked in society. For example, from our sisters and brothers in the black church, from ethnic minorities in the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. The questions being asked by uh, minorities, by ethnic groups, by uh, folks who are poor who lived in the cities. His call then was for... Uh, Christ Church, for the evangelical church to break out of their isolation by building bridges and connections, by, by sharing their gifts and receiving the gifts from others. His warning was that we, or the evangelical church, must put their own house in order through this sharing and receiving of gifts. Otherwise, he says, the cause of evangelical Christianity While achieving political effectiveness may foster a movement which it will live to regret. Giving to God what belongs to God is a call to avoid clinging to our political power. Because the political power, it offers solutions, but those solutions are limited Giving to God is a call to respect the government and to join God participating in his mission to love this world by loving God and loving our neighbor. Because together with the whole people of God, we are able to grow up into mature disciples of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, break down every power and authority that stands opposed to your kingdom and build up faith, hope, and love, and begin your work in us. Amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.